In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we talked about the armor of light. We talked about how light is this strange kind of armor and protection, but that when we uh, perceive ourselves rightly, where we perceive where we are, and we rightly perceive where we're going, where it is the Lord is leading us, then we're able to walk in that righteousness, walk in that hope and truth, and we're able to avoid the consequences of sin. So we do get a protection and armor when we perceive ourselves in the light of Christ. Now that we perceive ourselves, we perceive where we are and where Christ is, where He's leading us, it's not just enough that we know where we're going, we have to hope to get there. We have to have hope in uh, where it is that we're going and hope in dwelling with Him. Without that, we will never be motivated to move forward and to go. We have to have hope. And hope is not wishing. Hope is not dreaming. Hope is a hunger and a thirst that disciplines us and moves us forward. And so the hope that we uh, understand here today is a hope that uh, is this kind of hunger and thirst to move us forward into the presence of God. What it is that we're hoping for is so essential. The first understanding that we have here of what it is that we're hoping for comes from uh, the prophet Isaiah from chapter 11, starting at verse 6. Isaiah is describing for us uh, this new creation. Now we talked a little bit last week as well about how some have this idea of uh, the end of the world as being destruction and that uh, there will be nothing left and some people describe heaven as being this far away place and that we're going to be taken away to some new place. But yet the scripture talks about heaven as being this new Eden, this new creation that God has found creation to be good. He uh, designed us to dwell in this creation in the Garden of Eden and he has not abandoned that purpose. He is remaking and restoring creation for us to dwell in this Edenic paradise. And we see a description of that paradise here in Isaiah chapter 6. He talks about the wolf lying down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf and the young lion, the fattened calf together. And so this is an apocalyptic reading, right? An apocalyptic reading means that a valley is made high, that a mountain is brought low, that the poor are lifted up, that the strong are brought to justice. Right? It's this, um, this evening, this remaking of creation. And this is what we see here. We see this remaking of creation into this kind of paradise where a child will lead them. And of course, the child that Isaiah is referring to is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are preparing for the coming of our King, our God, uh, in His birth at Christmas. And so when we see this description of paradise, uh, we might realize that maybe this isn't exactly what we were hoping for. Maybe this isn't exactly what it is that we had in mind when we thought of an eternal dwelling with God. Indeed, some people um, chafe at the idea that not everybody would go to heaven. But the real question is, who wants to go? Because many people have no interest in dwelling in the kind of heaven that's described in Scripture. This heaven is a place of peace, it's a place of, of refuge, it's a place of, 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 of submitting oneself to a child. And many people have no interest in that. Some people have an interest in power, they have an interest in strength, they have an interest in putting other people down and putting other people under their thumb. They have an interest in winning and being a winner, and that means there's going to be losers. Some people have no interest in living in a world where there won't be contention, where there won't be aggression, where there won't be um, winning and uh, the powerful. And so that is the first thing that we have to understand is, do we want to live in this paradise as the scripture describes it? 
this place of peace where we have to come to a new understanding of what it means to be a wolf, a new understanding of what it means to be a lion. This is not the old wolf and the old lion. This is a new creation that we're coming into. And that means that we're going to have to give up some habits, give up some things that we had depended upon before to make our living. And we're going to have to find a new way of living in this Edenic paradise, being led by the Christ child, by Jesus. He would bring us into his holy mountain. He would bring us um, to this resting place. And of course, that's always God's desire. And we see this over and over again in scripture that he would bring us into his mountain, his resting place, his dwelling, his abode, his tabernacle. God's desire is to tabernacle with us, to dwell with us, to live with us, for us to be one with him. And he would draw us into that dwelling place, that resting place with him, because that's his desire to be with us. And he stands in the middle as this beacon of light. He stands in the middle of his people. It says here as a signal for them, as a signal. Sometimes people want to talk about Holy Communion as being a symbol, and it's no such thing. It's a sign. A sign is evidence, right? Smoke is evidence of fire, right? It is evidence, and Christ is a signal for us. He is evidence, and when we see Christ, we have evidence that we're dwelling with him in paradise. When we receive Holy Communion, when we receive baptism, we're not receiving signals. We're receiving evidence of his grace. Evidence of his profound remaking of ourselves. And when we come to him, when we come to this stump, this branch of Jesse, and remember that Jesse is the father of David, and David was promised that the Messiah would come through his line. So we see when we read about the stump of Jesse, we're reading about Jesus, we're reading about him who was promised through the line of David, that he will bring for us fruit, that he will um, bear through us fruit. And the fruit that we see in Isaiah is very important. We need to understand uh, what kind of uh, trees we're supposed to be, right? Because when people see us, they should be seeing the fruit. They should be able to look at our lives, and they should be able to see evidence of the fruit that we're producing, right? They should be able to look and say, oh yeah, this is what I see in your life. What are the, the seven uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit that we see? And indeed, these are not our fruits. These are fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit working through us is going to display this fruit. What are they? I'm going to read them to you, not in the order in Scripture, but in a slightly different order. If you've been in Jesus the Good Shepherd long enough, you'll remember some of the studies we've done of St. Augustine and how he links the fruits of the Spirit here in Isaiah 11 to the Beatitudes, to the seven Beatitudes, and then to the seven um, statements of the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to read it in that order, the order that will match up with the Beatitudes and with the Lord's Prayer. So this is the fruit that he promises. Fear of the Lord, righteousness, knowledge, faithfulness, counsel, understanding, and wisdom. This is Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3. Let me read again what we read here. Fear of the Lord, righteousness, knowledge, faithfulness, counsel, understanding, and wisdom. These are the things that people should see when they look at our lives. They should see the Holy Spirit has been working through us and that we have evidence of this. Let's just start, number one, with the fear of the Lord, because that's the first one. That's what everything starts with. Some people like to talk about fear of the Lord as just being respect. Okay, respect is part of fear, but it's a lot more. 
right? I have a respect for a bus, but I also have a great fear of a bus, right? And so I'm going to look both ways before I step into the street because the bus is bigger than me, it's stronger than me, right? If the bus flattens me, is the bus mad at me? No, right? Is the bus saying I'm a bad person? Well, I didn't look. So in that way, I suppose... But I have a real fear of the bus, and so I'm going to look both ways and double-check before I step off of the curb, right? That is real fear. There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to sin. The Lord has created this world with real and certain consequences. If we lie and we cheat and we steal and we commit adultery, all those things that we read in the Ten Commandments, there will be real-life consequences for those actions. The Lord isn't standing back and saying, I'm going to punish you for this and for this. But there are real consequences by the way that, that we are made, the way that we relate to one another. When We don't need the Lord to punish us for stealing or lying. We're going to be punished by the broken relationships and by the lack of support that we have in our family, in our community, and the way that it will break apart. And so we have to have a real fear of the Lord. We have to perceive that. And when we perceive that, we perceive God is holy and we are not. Right? He is strong and we are not. When we do that, the, in the Beatitudes, Jesus calls that poverty of spirit, right? To be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to realize God is great and I am low. God is powerful and I am not. And we say that in the Lord's Prayer by saying, Hallowed be thy name. Right? We say, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be the Lord's name. He is holy and we are not. Once we've established that, Everything else falls into place. Once we've established that fear of the Lord, then we're watching and we're waiting and we're learning righteousness and knowledge and faithfulness and all of those things. But we have to have a proper understanding of our relationship to God. And this is a relationship that John the Baptist makes very clear when he's preaching in Matthew chapter 3. Right? John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He comes and he prepares the way for Jesus. He tells the people what to expect. He tells them, this is what Jesus is going to teach you. This is what he's going to do, right? I'm going to baptize you with water for the washing away of sins, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That means he's going to bring that fire of the Holy Spirit upon you to give you the strength, the grace, the power that you need to evidence these fruits of the Spirit. And you see that as he's in the River Jordan and he's preaching, he sees the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming. And these are uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, right? These are the political parties. These are the self-interest groups, right? These are the people that are working for themselves and trying to gain superiority one over the other, right? They're doing party politics in the kingdom of God. And Jesus has no interest in that, right? He's saying that you need to repent of your sins and bear fruit. And so this is what John the Baptist says. He says, don't think that it's enough just to confess your sins. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, again, for those of you that maybe missed it last time, I'm going to show you this very complex understanding of repentance. Are you ready? Because it's very complex. Did you catch that? I'll do it one more time in case you missed it. Right? I was going this way, and I realized, oh, that's sin. That's going to lead me to destruction. I need to confess that. I need to say, Lord, I was going the wrong way. Sometimes we think that's enough. We, we confess our sin. We say, I was going the wrong way. Okay, that's a good start. 
But confession of sin isn't enough. What do I have to do? Now that I've confessed my sin and I've said, oh, I'm sorry I was going the wrong way, what do I have to do? I have to turn and start doing the right thing. Righteousness and faithfulness and understanding and wisdom, right? I need to be walking into those things. When I walk in those things, now I'm bearing fruit worthy of repentance. So it's not just enough to say, oh, I'm sorry I did the wrong thing, but I have to turn and bear that fruit. And what happens for a tree that doesn't bear fruit is that it's chopped down. Now, living in this suburban paradise, sometimes we forget about uh, you know, agricultural realities. We forget some of these uh, motifs that Jesus uses, these allegories, these frames of reference, right? And so uh, for us, uh, in our front yards, an, an ornamental tree is just fine. It doesn't do anything for anybody, right? It's just a pretty tree, and I don't need anything else. But when we depend upon a tree for our food, for our sustenance, for our life, to feed our families, to build our, our community, right? A tree that's taking resources, that's taking water, and that's taking food and manure, and it's taking all of my labor to trim it and prune it, that's ornamental, it just gets what? Cut down. Is the farmer mad at the tree that's cut down? Is he angry at it? No. He simply says, I need to remove it so that I can replace it with a tree that's going to bear fruit, that's going to bring about something to feed my children. There's no anger or resentment or judgment in that. It's simply to say, this tree isn't bearing fruit. I need to plant one that does. And this is what John the Baptist says. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's in verse 10. So he's saying, that tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, does he throw the tree into the fire because he's mad at it? No, because that's what needs to be done with a tree that's wasting space and energy, right? It needs to be restored, and out of that ash will come some fertilizer or some soap or other good things we use from ash, right? There's some good thing is going to come out of that. And he uses the other frame. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. So now he's moved from the analogy of the tree that doesn't bear fruit to the wheat and the chaff. And remember, in the ancient world, once they had cut down wheat, they would separate the, the grain head and then they would place it on a threshing floor. And a, flesh, a threshing floor, floor is a high place near the field. They needed it to be close by. And so they would bring that wheat to that threshing floor, that high, flat place, and they would use a winnowing fork, which was a large fork with many uh, tongs that were spread out, and they would throw the wheat into the air and then the chaff, the bits that are unedible, right, inedible, would break away and would blow in the wind. And the chaff would gather away from the threshing floor, and then that chaff would be brought together, and indeed that again would be burned. Not because the farmer is mad at the chaff, but just because it needs to be removed, right? It's, it's, it's a mess, right? It needs to be cleared up. And that threshing floor is a symbol for uh, our place of worship. It's a symbol for where we meet God. Indeed, the tabernacle, the temple of Jerusalem, was built upon a threshing floor. That's where we meet God and where he separates us from our sins. And if we come ready, through fear of God, to be separated from our sin and ready to bear fruit, then we will be ready to receive the Holy Spirit. But we have to be ready to bear fruit. We have to say, yes, I want to bear this good fruit. Because, um, again... This is not the kind of life that everybody wants. 
Some people read what St. Paul is telling to the Romans here at the end of this beautiful letter that he writes in chapter 15. He says um, that the strong have an obligation, an obligation, right? That means a, a duty, a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak. That is not what the world teaches. The world teaches, forget about the weak, right? Stupid people, lazy people, people that we don't like, that don't talk the way that we like, that don't dress the way that we like, that don't vote the way that we like, right? Get rid of them, right? At least I'm not like them. I'm me. But the Lord is saying we're supposed to, under obligation, right, bear with their failings and not to please ourselves. The world says, do what feels good. Do what's right. Please yourself, right? Do self-care. Take care of yourself first. This is the exact opposite of the gospel. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So the goal of these fruits of the Spirit are not for ourselves, not to build up ourselves. That wisdom, that counsel, that faithfulness, that fear is not for us. It's for us to bear up the weak, to strengthen them, to bear up and to build up our neighbor as Christ did. He did not come to please himself. He came, right, to bear the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, he came to save those very people that persecuted him. Those very people. For what was written in former days was written for our instruction. What does he mean here? He's talking about Holy Scripture. Remember, um, the, the Bible is a, a selection, it's a, it's a collection of Holy Scripture, right? Holy Scripture, these writings of Isaiah, and the writings of the Gospels, and books like Genesis, all these books that we call Holy Scripture, right? That St. Paul is referring to as those things written for our instruction. That's what he's talking about here. And so he's saying, uh, we're going to need help. Because what we're talking about here is really hard, right? To bear other people's burdens, to, to serve others. It's really difficult. It's not easy. It's not always fun, right? And so we're going to need three very important things. We're going to need endurance, right? We need endurance to run a race that's hard and that's long. So we're going to need endurance. We're going to need encouragement, right? We're going to need to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. We're going to need to encourage one another. And we need hope. Right? We need to hunger and thirst. We need to not only say, okay, I'm going to do these things, but we have to want to do them. We have to desire them. Right? And in that desire, then our lives become organized and disciplined to do them. And he says these things, encouragement and endurance twice, and hope in this small passage four times. Do you think those are important? Do you think maybe when he says it four times that it's important? And he says that we're going to get it from Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters, if we neglect the daily reading of Scripture, we will be without hope. We will be without endurance. We will be without encouragement. If we neglect the daily reading of Holy Scripture, if we neglect turning to Holy Scripture, we will be without hope because we will not perceive our goal. We will not perceive where it is that we're going and we will be confused by the animosity and the greed and the criticism of the world around us. Those voices are loud. They are loud. 
And he goes step by step here in referring to scripture to get at the central place of division in the church in the first century. The central place of division was between Jew and Gentile. They did not receive Holy Communion together. Jews received Holy Communion in one place, at one table, and Gentiles at another. And all of Romans and all this talk about, uh, about the, the, the circumcision and about the group of the circumcision and about the works that he calls circumcision are all about these two groups, Jew and Gentile. And he's saying they have to come together to bear one another's burdens, to, to lift one another up, to encourage each other so that they could live together in harmony. And so he shows the harmony of the Jew and the Gentile together from 2 Samuel, from Deuteronomy 32, and from Psalm 217. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. He's saying Jew and Gentile come together in Christ. And while this is the first division that we find in the church, there are so many over nationality, over ethnicity, over language, over the way that we look, over the way that we dress, over the way that we worship, over the way that we sing. Over and over, divisions rise in the church. And St. Paul is telling us that we have to, through Holy Scripture, be encouraged to endure and to bear one another up. We are here to worship the Lord and to build one another up, not to serve our own tastes and predilections. Well, on Thanksgiving morning, Aaron and I woke up and our refrigerator was uh, leaking from the freezer. The freezer was not freezing anymore. And so uh, Monday morning after Thanksgiving, we called a repairman and he said, well, uh, I could fix it for about the price that you could buy a new one. So we went shopping and uh, picked out a new freezer. And uh, so to uh, you know, preserve the food that we had, I had to go into our shed and find all of our old uh, coolers and things, right? So I'm going out into my shed. What do I find? I know you're going to be surprised by this. A real mess, right? <laughs> uh, and so I had to dig out my coolers and I had to find my stuff and I had to reorganize my shelves and... Then we had to put all of our stuff into the cooler. We had to reorganize everything that was in our fridge. And then I had to reorganize everything to put it back and to, to get the, everything into the new fridge, right? And then when we pulled the old fridge out, guess what we found? I know you'll be surprised by this as well. It was dirty, right? <laughs> the floor was dirty. We had to, to mop and clean and, 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 and vacuum and, and clean up that mess underneath the refrigerator so that we could put the new thing in and the new place with that food. And that's what Advent is. It's cleaning out. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've got a mess. Right? Maybe your life is a mess so that you don't have the time. You look around and say, gee, I had another day without reading Holy Scripture. Right? Another day without prayer. You will fall into hopelessness and despair. The other option is to clean up and reorganize and reorient our days so that we begin every day with prayer and scripture. I don't like telling you all what to do too much, but I'm going to tell you what to do now. This is what the table next to your bed or your chair and your bedroom should look like. That's a Bible, and that's the Bible organized for prayer. We call it the Book of Common Prayer. 
It's Holy Scripture organized for daily prayer. A Bible and a prayer book. And we should read them every day. If we don't, we will fall into despair and sin. If we do, we will have the encouragement of the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth fruit in our lives. Amen.